And we're back with another episode of the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. Today we are talking about, it's a short little episode about the the difficulties, the problems with typing. This is, I'm sure as soon as any of you learned about the Enneagram, you began typing everyone from your aunt to your goldfish. So um, Mario, how do we type our fishes and our pets? Well, so you have, you know, you have to look at the size of their chin, uh, their facial expression. But not directly. And you need to get a picture yeah. first. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, very, very often um, when people learn that I'm into the Enneagram, it's like, oh, my dog is, and they always say seven. They always say seven and they think it's because they're super perceptive about their dog. <laughs> That's no. interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, so so it is a natural tendency. I mean, you know, we look, I mean, what good is the Enneagram if we can't type people, right? I mean, so we, we have yeah. this powerful typology. And if somebody says, you know, we, we tell them, oh, there's this great tool. And then they say, oh, great. What type am I? And we say, well, I don't know. <laughs> you know, well, then, uh, well, you know, why are we talking right, about this? Right? right. And the Enneagram is deceptively difficult. In the beginning, it seems simple. And the way it's mm-hmm. taught by a lot of people, it's just simple. I mean, you look at that tree, it's clearly a nine, right? Or look at that dog, you know, <laughs> it's clearly a seven. Look at it chasing that frisbee, you know, and, right. and so forth. So it's easy to create these simple uh, identifications of certain things. And then, classify everything we see mm-hmm. and humans have this fundamental desire to classify everything right mm-hmm. to put some label on it because once i put a label on it i don't really have to think about it anymore right right, right. if i can decide my dog's a seven then i can just kind of stop paying attention to it and not think any further about its nuances mm-hmm. and its issues and its needs and so forth. I think it's. I think it is. It's not a um, a wrong thing to do when you're first no. learning the enneagram. It's like it's just a practice, but yes. continually, it's a practice of observing patterns. Yes, but you can't stop after observing three patterns. Yeah. Right? right, you have to keep going. Yeah, and I think that look, we need to do that in order to know how to function, how to deal with the world we need to classify people we need to classify mm-hmm. situations and so that we can understand what's required of us but and if we don't practice we will not have the ability to use the enneagram effectively to me the thing is how we do it and what we do with it so the quality of the assessment and how hard or how attached we are to that judgment and then how we share it or not and what we how we treat people depending on the, that assessment to me makes the difference it's not assessing I, yeah I'll, I'll share with you what i think the, the big issue is to, to go a little bit further on that maria jose it's not that we are categorizing it's that actually we stop categorizing too quickly mm-hmm. okay so, uh, for example, I remember talking to a, a real estate salesman one time, and he said, oh, yeah, I'm always sizing up everybody I come into contact with. And what I look for is the way they dress. And if they dress this way, they're going to be able to afford to buy something. And if they dress that way, they're not going to be able to afford you know, something, and i got to try and sell them something else. Well, 
that's a good, perhaps, initial sorter. But, you know, if, if Mark Zuckerberg comes up to you in a hoodie, right, and, yeah, you know, you wants seen- to buy a house, you know, and you say, well, you know, I got this row house in a bad neighborhood because that looks like all you yeah. can afford. Well, you know, so... What we Have you seen with- any crypto bros ever? Yeah, right. <laughs> They're all hoodies and sweats. Yeah, although with the crypto bros, it may prove prove the point of people actually being broke when they, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay. But that's another story. Uh, but you're right. So we can we can be superficial in our labeling. We can be we cannot continue to follow the data. And I think that's one of the most important things when we're trying to assess someone's Enneagram type is that we don't see it as something we have to draw a conclusion on right away. But instead, we say, hmm, these behaviors, these characteristics make me think this type. Let me continue to watch this person and let me look for other things that I see and not just reinforcement. Yeah. Of it's treating it as mm-hmm. a hypothesis rather than like a conclusion that yes. we got to. Uh, but I also want to talk about, you know, and we can kind of call some of these episodes we're doing here what's pissing off Mario at the moment, right? And, um, <laughs> but he, <laughs> today in the life of Mario. Yeah, but just, he just needs to talk about I got to get it off my chest. Now I'm going to make everybody listen, and we're going to you know use up your time, uh, you know, for this enneagram assessments. Okay, and the the weight people put on enneagram assessments is really problematic. Okay, because assessing somebody's enneagram type in an online test is really really tough. And this is something Maria Jose and I have wrestled with for years, right? Because particularly when you work with companies, they want an assessment and we created an assessment. It's a pretty good assessment, but every Enneagram assessment I have seen is give or take 70% accurate, the best ones. Okay. Which means three people out of 10 or more in any given group are going to be mistyped. And it's human nature to hear somebody describing these types and say, oh man, I am such a three or such a five or whatever. And then they look at their test results and because it's on a piece of paper and because it was generated by some kind of algorithm and on a computer, they say, well, you know, I really thought I was a five, but my results say that I'm mm-hmm. a nine, so I must be a nine. Mm-hmm. Okay, And that's in psychology, it's called an automation bias, right? It's a real phenomenon that people trust an automated process more than they trust their own judgment about something. Hmm. It gets even more dangerous when a test is definitive, right? It says, you are this type. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't say, here's how you scored in all of these areas. Okay, It says, here's your type, and here's all the information you need to know about that type. Because what then happens is people will fall into confirmation bias. There's something called the Barnum effect, named after P.T. Barnum, the circus guy who said, you know, sucker born every minute and so forth. Uh, It also goes by the name the Forer effect, which means that if you give people information that feels close enough or that is vague enough to be interpreted, they will say, oh, yeah, that describes me. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, College psychology classes will give, you know, have people write down their date of birth and then give them their horoscope. And then ask people, does this meet you? And everybody says, oh, yeah, that's absolutely me. And then they realize that everybody got the same description. 
Okay? <laughs> but because you know, but because it was framed in such a way, mm. we can find those things in ourselves, and we can do the same thing with the enneagram types. So you really, really have to be careful about online tests. Take them with a grain of salt and weigh it against your own experience. Mm-hmm. My mind went to two places. One is, like a short one, is the same happens when teachers type people and say to a person, you're a seven. Just getting that out of their minds mm-hmm. is impossible. It's They can live for years with that assessment thinking that they are a seven. So we need to be very, very careful. Yeah. Because... The teacher also yeah. has this authority, like the like the assessment has, that it's dangerous. Even if you say it lightly, yeah. and you change your mind later, but don't say it, people will walk away believing that they are that. Before you go to the second thing, what what is the rubric that you all use? The filters of like when is when is that point when you've you feel confident enough to be able to deliver that, and then how do you deliver that? that judgment (laughs) (laughs) when do you stamp that you know know, look i look i've been working with a team and there's one particular guy who i have struggled to type and that doesn't mean that i've struggled to type him and tell him but just in my own mind get to Mm -hmm. some certainty of what his type could be and it was only after listening tell his whole kind of story of his life that I realized that he was a navigating seven. Or that was a closer hypothesis. I thought about three, transmitting nine. I mean, there were several options. But in my conversations throughout the months with him, we have been looking at the types and saying, okay, how about this one? Oh, and now I thought about this one. And does it make sense to you? So not saying anything, I believe that with coaching clients, it's not viable. You need to share, speak your mind and say what you're thinking, but not as this is it. Mm-hmm. You know, in my case, what I do is say, look, this could be an option. Shall we explore it? And next mm-hmm. time we talk about it again and, but, and leave it. If it's too hard, you know, I just leave it and don't think about it. And then at some point, it just becomes more clear. So there's, there's a, a couple of things on, on that. Um, the, the phrase that everybody who works with the Enneagram should drill into their head is provisional mm-hmm. hypothesis, right? Um, right. That, um, that, okay, here's what I see so far. Okay. And here's what my hypothesis is. Now, a hypothesis is a premise to be tested. Okay. It's, you know, it's not a theory. A theory is a different thing, but um, it's, and it's provisional, meaning that based on what I have seen so far, here's my view. And I may get data. I may see things that make me alter my provisional hypothesis. Okay. And so, based on that, and what that does, number one, it tells the client that you're respectful enough of who they are not to jump to conclusions, that you see nuance, that you appreciate them as an individual, mm-hmm. that you're not just trying to throw them into a box. Right. The other thing it does is it provide, it, 
it, frankly, it just allows you to save face when you realize you were wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is something a lot of Enneagram teachers won't do. Oh, man, I, I've, you know, I've typed this person, you know, I've been working with them and telling them they're this type. And now I don't think I'm right. So what am I going to do? Am I going to humiliate myself by saying, you know, you know what? I was wrong and fear undermining my credibility. Or am I going to say, hey, remember how I told you this was a provisional hypothesis? I've seen some things that have me questioning that. Hmm. Right. So that's really the approach to and take. And that's I when think. you need mm -hmm. to say it, because in my experience, there are some people who very quickly see themselves in their type, and you don't need to say anything. Just help them. You facilitate that process by explaining the types, and they see it. Sometimes I even just mention kind of like each type is trying to feel a particular way, mention the names, and they say, okay, I'm between these two, and they're spot on. Hmm. Those are the easy cases, but when it becomes harder, I tend to share my thinking and my provisional hypothesis. The other thing you have to keep in mind when you're assessing people's Enneagram types is hmm. the subtypes, the instinctual biases, right? And, uh, you know, we always encourage people to start with the instinctual bias. See if you can figure out their instinctual bias first, because that will help you understand the possible types they could be more effectively. Maria Jose mentioned the navigating seven. The navigating seven is a hard seven to spot, much harder than the transmitting seven. Right? And if you, they can look like a three, they can look like a nine, they can look like a two, et cetera. But if you get that they're navigating first, then you can start to say, okay, well, this person's navigating and I'm also seeing these things. So which subtypes does it help me with? And in some of the subtypes, transmitting eight, transmitting seven, you know, uh, preserving six, these two things come together, reinforce each other, and make the person pretty easy to type. Mm. Some of the others are much more difficult because of that stress between the two elements. Mm -hmm. The thing I've run into a few times is honestly just the lack of interest of knowing, knowing their instinctual bias, right? They want to know the type. Um, yeah. what's, what's your method of selling them on, we should figure this out first. I don't convince them. I um, just tell them. Shut up. Sure. So I'll share my uh, assessing method, right? I mean, it's, you know, I just ask them open-ended questions and the open-ended questions I ask them first are related to the instinctual biases. Right. So whether they care or not, I'm seeing it. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm not asking them, okay, here are the questions I have to determine whether you're a seven. Here are the questions I have to determine whether you're an eight. You know, no, I'm just asking them and I'm evaluating what they say. And I am seeing the instinctual bias first. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so then the same thing happens with the type. And then I share with them, okay, well, here's the model that I use it has these two elements. And here's what I saw regarding the first element. Here's what I saw regarding the second element. What are your thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. my approach mm -hmm. is relatively different. I ask the questions first. Mm. I share the model briefly. And I ask them first what they see. And then share my thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. 
That makes sense. I'll do that sometimes if I'm feeling patient. Yeah, but it's a better practice, right? You know, here are the three instinctual biases. Which of these, you know, does one mm. of these resonate with and, you? And, you know, yeah. my experience with your question, Craig, of how to convince them, it is so easy to show them the how practical it is to understand that, how it translates mm. into their the issues they're having in their relationships at work is so easy to see it that they see the value very quickly. Mm, so I try sense. to make it very mm. practical. What are some examples of those initial open-ended questions that you all ask? So for me, my goal, I usually do a, a you know, a one or two hour, usually about a one hour interview of people. And my first goal is just to get them talking. It, right. it used so to be two hours, uh, and for me, two, I don't yeah. need the two hours anymore. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and what I'll do is I'll use most of that first hour to, you know, gather information and then whatever it is for the rest of the time to share with them and to discuss, right? So, but I, I want to get them talking and I want to start looking for patterns that I see in them. And then I start asking them about their hobbies, because hobbies are often really reflective of instinctual bias, right? A hobby is what we do with our discretionary time. What we do with our discretionary time is usually related to our instinctual bias in some way. And then I start, you know, observing their affect. And it's the observation of affect in light of a premise related to the instinctual bias that helps me narrow down the type. Right. I mean, because some people's affect is just more seven ish or more eight ish. And so I'm not going to ask a lot of questions thinking maybe they're a five, you know, or something mm -hmm. like that. Right. So I kind of narrow it down. So it's, you know, it's just, it's to get them to talk and to reveal themselves and to know what cues to look for. And the latter is where it gets hard. Right. When you're just introduced to the Enneagram, you don't know what the real cues are related to type. Okay, so you're jumping to conclusions based on superficial traits without understanding what's underneath the hood, mm. you know, necessarily. So it takes a lot of knowledge about the Enneagram. It takes a lot of experience of working with the Enneagram to get good at typing people. Right? I've been doing this 25 years. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know, so when people saying, oh, you know, I just learned the Enneagram. How do I get better at typing? I think, well, you know, let's talk about it in five years, you know, after you've spent a lot of time provisionally assessing people's Enneagram types. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of techniques that I would encourage people to practice, right? Number one, watch for confirmation bias, right? Because once we start thinking somebody might be a particular type, we start asking questions that reinforce that. We start looking for data to reinforce our premise instead of challenging or trying to falsify our hypothesis. Right. So if I think this person might be a seven, for example, well, let me try to disprove that they're a seven. Let me ask them questions that, you know, no seven would answer, you know, a particular way. And then, you know, see if I disprove my hypothesis. Another way to do that, because thinking about kind of how to disprove might be not that easy. But uh, to think about those mm. questions that no seven would answer, something like that. But thinking about an alternative to seven, to say, okay, if he's not a seven, he could be, I don't know, a two or a three. 
So let's try to ask questions that a three would answer positively. And that's another way to disprove it. It's fine. Like the second best, mm. the second, the closest alternative that I see. So maybe not use connecting points it, when trying mm. to disprove, because there's going to be some similarities in crossover. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. And you have to understand what are the ways that, say, you know, a particular type accesses the strategies at the connecting points, right? right? And, you know, and understand those dynamics. But the key is to get as many data points as we can and to triangulate, right? So when I'm working with a client, I'm giving them my view. I'm asking them their view. I have them read some things so they can come back to me. And I do a 360 assessment, okay? So I get other people's feedback. And if I get feedback from 12 coworkers that completely go against my, you know, uh, expectations of how a particular type would be, I have to go back to the drawing board and question mm. my perspective, right? Um, you know, if I think the person's an eight, but all the feedback says, oh, you know, they avoid conflict all the time. Mm. Well, I, you know, I got to go, I got to go back and challenge myself and say, oh, probably not an eight. Right. Okay. So, I, I would say that to me, in my experience, the main mistakes are made when you don't understand the instinctual biases. I think that it's so yeah. easy to see a preserver and think that they might be a one or a six or a transmitter and think that they have to be a three, or an eight or a seven or a navigator that they're definitely a two, for example. It's if you don't isolate the strategy and the, and the instinctual bias, you're very likely going to make a mistake unless it's a transmitting three or a transmitting eight or a preserving one or a preserving six. Key, key takeaways, if I, if I could here. Number one, be very, very cautious of online assessments. Okay, They're a starting point rather than a conclusion. Okay, Just because an assessment says you're this type or that type does not mean you are. It should be food for thought. And it's best to you know, explore yourself, and it's best to find somebody who actually knows what they're talking about when it comes to the Enneagram to help you figure it out. Mm -hmm. okay? So, you know, get as many data points as you can and triangulate. Okay, mm -hmm. Don't just jump to a conclusion. The other thing, either about yourself or when you're trying to assess other people, is see it as a process rather than something you have to answer right away. See it as a provisional hypothesis. You know, when you go to the eye doctor and they say, you know, they flip the lenses, you know, better or worse, better or worse, right? Well, view it as an ongoing process of refinement mm -hmm. of your understanding of the other person. The other thing is, rather than fear being wrong, look for ways in which you could be wrong in which you have been wrong, and ask yourself, what can I learn from that? Mm -hmm. Because one of the reasons that people don't admit they're wrong about things is because they're afraid that, you know, well, people think I don't know what I'm talking about. But every time you realize you were wrong about something, there's an opportunity to learn and get better, mm -hmm. right? So if I recognize that, oh, I, I mistyped that person. Where did I go wrong? How can I go back and learn from that, right? Mm -hmm. What can I add to my body of knowledge? That's the way you get good at this. And some people are very, very quickly jump into conclusions and type other people. Some people get paralyzed by 
conversations like this because they feel that they will never be able or good enough to type other people. And I think that the only way to get good at it is practicing it. However, doing what we have said, taking this as a provisional hypothesis and maybe mm. not throwing our conclusions out, I mean, at people too quickly, it will provide insights. Even if, if we did it, our assessment is wrong, it will provide insights that would allow us to mm -hmm. deal with those people more effectively. It will be a deeper kind of yeah. interaction. You will get better, but don't get paralyzed because not practicing yeah. will not make you any better. W one more point, if I could. Hold your own type lightly, right? Don't, don't make a big production out of, oh, I'm such a type this or I'm such a type that. Don't become so identified with your Enneagram type that if you start to doubt your own assessment of yourself, that you're unwilling to change, mm. right? Because I see this all the time, right? I see that not all the time, but I see it frequently enough in people who've been teaching the Enneagram for a long time and start to question whether they got their type right. And in some of those cases, it's very clear to me that the person did not get their type right. And they've been teaching And in every opportunity they get to talk about it, they say, oh, well, I'm a five. Oh, I'm a five. I'm a five. I'm a five. And it becomes hard to go back and say, you know what? thought I was a five, but I'm actually a mm -hmm. four. Mm -hmm. Right? Hold it lightly. Be willing to be honest with yourself. You'll get better at this. Yeah. And I guess along those lines as well, in, in, in sessions that I've been in with clients is at, at some points I'm like, I don't say it like this, but it's like, let, let me be the Enneagram expert. You, you're the expert in yourself. And yeah. let's basically, I need you to forget about the Enneagram and just yeah. tell me about yourself and yeah. let me worry about figuring out what's Enneagram, what's you, all that sort of thing. So it's, cause yeah, people, a lot of clients get tied up in, I like This is session number two. I don't have my type yet. What's wrong with me? It's like, yeah. there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. let's just, let's just, like you were saying, like it, this is, this is just a journey of, of curiosity and finding patterns. We're going to learn so much along this journey and we may find your type eventually, yeah. but, but that's not the end, but it's, it's, um, we're just, we're going on a, a curiosity discovery journey of what makes you tick. And this is going to be fun regardless of the answer, whether it comes fast or slow. So, right. so I think that's, that, that covers at least the beginning stages of um, the difficulties of typing. As always, stay curious and we will speak to you soon. Cheers. So long, folks. Thanks for listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. If you're interested in more information or talking to Mario, MJ, or myself, feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awarenesstoaction.com. All episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awarenesstoaction.com slash podcast. 